Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June 9th. 2021 as always history is alive though just because it's june 9th 2021 does not mean that the present is all present um i'm talking to you from san francisco the headlines recently have been all too often about anti-asian violence and hatred particularly in the covid age and this anti-asian uh, discrimination seems to have uh, inflicted America more broadly. Um, uh, the New York Times last month talked about swelling anti-Asian violence. Who is being attacked where? They had names of people all over all over America, not just in Los Angeles and San Francisco, but in, San, in Seattle, in Manhattan, um, everywhere, in Florida. Um, the question, of course, is is why anti-Asian American hate doubled in March, according to, to new data, um, um, and the CNN uh, reflects that. Um, and, and some people are arguing this uh, 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 a thought piece that anti-American, uh, anti-Asian hate in, in the United States predates the pandemic. So we can't just see it in, in terms of the pandemic. Um, and uh, that's echoed by another piece uh, uh, in the Harvard Business Review of all places. I didn't know they they published stuff on on anti anti Asian racism, but uh, according to uh, Lily Zhang in the, in the Harvard Business Review, uh, to dismantle anti Asian racism, we must understand its roots. Roots is of course historic, and that's the business in some ways of this show. Um, there was a there was a very nice piece last year by the uh, writer Asako Serizawa, uh, "Waiting for a War, Waiting to Live." Uh, many of you will know um, uh, Serizawa because of her highly acclaimed uh, book last year, "Inheritors," which has just come out in paperback, and that's a, a rather long-winded way of uh, introducing. Uh, uh, Asako. Welcome. Thank you. Asako. Thank you so much for having um, me. I don't want to pigeonhole you, Asako, and we'll get a little bit more into um, into the piece you wrote for LitHub uh, last year, as, as, as well as Inheritors. Um, but have you been surprised, uh, when I say pigeonhole you as a, an Asian-American writer, I'm sure that gets on your nerves from time to time, but have you been surprised by this eruption of anti-Asian hate across America, uh, which has come to the, the surface in, in the pandemic, but as you of all people know, is, is, is a historic feature of American life? Yeah, I mean, you know, Asian American or Asian uh, racism is definitely has long roots. Um, it's 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 super national national in the sense that it's not just about it's not a nationally produced thing. You know, there's a long history of imperialism. There was the other peril. You know, there are all these other um, ways. I guess as uh, immigration increased, you know, um, racist 
um, racism is a, is a, or stereotypes you know, developed and then racism ends up becoming a really convenient way of, you know, controlling the narrative around that and stoking fears and sort of um, containing, um, you know, uh, or protecting jobs, for example. So no, I don't think that um, Asian, anti-Asian racism is new at all. Uh, you would say controlling the narrative as a, as a writer. I guess you see life and everything in, in terms of narrative. One of the things I was struck with in this excellent piece last year for Lehab, Waiting for War, Waiting to Live, was, and, and, I, and maybe you can clarify this a little bit, um, but you were on a street and you were, I think, uh, intimidated by a, a man, average height, jeans and T-shirt, denim, and I'm quoting you here, denim jacket, it was his face that flipped the circuit of fear. There was no light in it, no animation, even the eyes, the palest blue I'd ever seen, utterly flat, all the effervescence extinguished. I kept walking, cursing my suitcases, rationalizing the jangle in the air, the focused charge in his stride, the hooded murmur, until his voice amplified the private litany, revealing discreet words that abruptly dilated the situation. Pearl Harbor, 41, Korea, 52, Vietnam, 63, Pearl Harbor, 41, Korea, 52, Vietnam, 63, Pearl Harbor, 41, Korea, 52, Vietnam, 63. Uh, tell me a little bit more about why you wrote that and what you meant by it. Well, you know, it's one of those instances that I didn't, I personally didn't expect, you know, it was one of the first sort of instances of racism that I guess I experience, you know, where there was this kind of lumping together and this, um, of, of any kind of Asian, it didn't matter, you know, and this history brought to the fore, you know, in a country that I didn't particularly expect to see it, you know, I mean, in Asia, obviously, um, you know, World War II is such a contested history that's a live wire still, you know, and it's always in the news and, you know the different countries use that narrative for for nationalist per, nationalist to stoke nationalism. You know, especially during you know voting times or um, when there's internal division and strife. But in America, it wasn't something that I particularly thought to worry about. And here it was. You know, and um, but you know, I mean, it was hard to sort of. Uh, see this man as this sort of horrible person or a menace. I mean, there's, you know, it was very clear to me that he had his own sort of relationship to this history and um, had gone through, I mean, you know, I thought he was a veteran, um, you know, so he had experiences in this war and obviously trauma isn't restricted to the victims. Um, I mean, trauma is just the future of, of wars. And so that, that moment really stayed with me because it was a kind of maybe mutual fear of some kind, you know, and there was this sort of veneer of um, experiences on both sides that was, were, was kind of preventing this sort of human interaction. Uh, Asako, the, um, the subtitle, I don't know if it was yours or Lit Hub, uh, but no. you're writing on the inheritance of trauma. Trauma seems to me to be a, a very contemporary word. Do you think it's a word that describes your acclaimed collection of stories, Inheritors? Is it a book about one kind of trauma or another? 
I mean, I suppose, you know, it could be a book about traumas. I mean, I, you know, writing it, I was definitely interested in the consequences, you know, and trauma is one of the consequences of this history and this war. But I think, you know, more than that, it was for me, it was about war responsibility and generally the relationship between um, individual agency and, you know, larger collective trajectories um, and sort of, you know, how one, ha what one has to do with the other, you know, because it's sometimes hard to, to understand that, I think. You've said, Asako, that the book took you 12 years, partially because you had to do a lot of digging, to borrow a, a, a rather French word. You, you had to become an archaeologist because people in Asia and Japan, for one reason or other, won't talk about the war. Um, is, is that why the only way really perhaps to, to, to write about the history that you write about is as a fiction rather than non-fiction writer? Well, you know, I thought about writing it as nonfiction, but I think I ran into this problem where there was this kind of restriction in the form itself, you know, um, those constraints that I couldn't find my way around. And maybe it was my skill level at that time, you know, um, but it's, you know, sometimes it's just when you want to get sort of maximum complexity in um, and have characters that are navigating that sort of thing, um, it's sometimes easier to invent characters and um, invent scenarios. Um, so well, you're being very why. kind and uh, Asako, uh, it's not easier as you, you know as well as anybody that fiction writing is in many ways much harder than nonfiction writing. Or well, at least they, they both come with their own challenges. One is certainly not easier than the other. Right, yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, um, the fictional form, I mean, the other thing I had to consider was, do I want to write this as a novel, you know? Um, and I think the answer, um, because I was writing against um, official histories that are no novelistic, you know, um, they're kind of streamlined um, and, you know, have a clear beginning, middle and end and this kind of linearity and, and logical arc. Um, I decided to use the story form. So there, there, I did think about um, form in, in many different ways. We had, uh, so I don't know if you heard this show. Uh, I, I know you sometimes listen to my show. You're one of the few people who do. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the excellent American uh, journalist, Leslie M.M. Bloom wrote a book, Fallout, about, um, it's a book about uh, John Hirsch's Hiroshima. It's a book about uh, writing about Hiroshima. It's a wonderful book. Um, I guess you would describe Hiroshima as a, a, a 20th century death event. And, 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 and you quote the, um, the writer in, in your Lit Hub piece, Margot Norris. Um, you, you quote her, she says, she writes, the death event was inaugurated by World War One, was not abolished after the Great War or after Hiroshima and the Holocaust. The 20th century death event has in fact become our conventional warfare. Literature and art are not immune to colluding. Now I know you're quoting Norris rather, you didn't write this, but you must have been affected with what she said. Explain what Norris means and, and this idea of a 20th, 20th century death event and how, again, to borrow a word that you use from, from well, I mean, to, 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 to talk about the inheritors, how we've inherited that in the 21st century. Well, it's sort of, so, you know, 
this all sort of um, links back to an, the epigraph that begins the book, because for me, at least the book begins with that epigraph, you know, um, the fully enlightened earth radiates disaster triumphant. Um, and it's a quote by Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer. And they wrote this book called um, Dialectic of Enlightenment, which is basically a critique of 17th um, to 18th, 18th century Western Enlightenment project um, that promoted a worldview that privileged, you know, science and technology and reason um, to get humanity out of the dark ages um, into a brighter, uh, happier future. Um, and it put forth this notion of progress in which science and technology and reason uh, were seen to be. Uh, yeah, let, let, let me add, let me just throw in yeah. a circle that Adorno, in particular, is is an extremely controversial figure because of sure. his his accusations of of racism of of one kind or another. So, so these guys aren't perfect either. And I assume no. you know that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so on the one hand, you know, this brought us modern medicine and modern engineering and all these other things, you know, and this kind of generally more organized world as we think of it. But there is a shadow side to this um, where, you know, science and technology and reason have, have essentially uh, become these instruments of administration and um, domination and control, um, especially in the capitalist context. And, you know, you can kind of see even, and he, you know, Adorno and Horkheimer doesn't really talk about this, but, you know, you can even see like this notion of progress itself and how that can kind of divide the world into the advanced and the backward or the modern and the primitive. And, um, you know, it could, how this, this kind of thinking could justify things like, um, you know, imperialism and colonialism, you know, in the guise of this kind of civilizing missions to bring light to the dark regions. Um, and, you know, so Adorno and Horkheimer thought of World War II, the Nazis and the, the Aryan project of um, the, the um, I mean, the Nazi project of the Aryan, um, advanced Aryan race or whatever, um, and the death camps and these kinds of mass violence and destruction and the optimization of these um, things as, as part of this, uh, as, a, as a logical outcome of the Enlightenment project. And, you know, I think Adorno, anyway, has, uh, I think, continued to worry that fascism might be inherent in certain forms of democracy. And so this is sort of like part of what the book is kind of uh, tracing. Um, and so that quote that you read by Norris um, falls into that. So I'm, I'm trying to put World War II into that, into that sort of framework um, you know, but obviously putting it into the Japanese context rather than the Western context. And I do this through uh, bringing it through the um, characters. There's a family tree in the beginning, and that family tree begins with this character who um, was born in 1868, which is a really important uh, historical date for Japan. Um, it's the beginning uh, where it's, it's called the Meiji Restoration, and essentially it's this time when governments was restored uh, to the emperor, and it began this sort of, it marked this moment um, that began Japan's nationalization and um, imperial project, and, you know, that kind of led, led into the um, 20th century wars. And we kind of see the intergenerational impact. Um, Is there, a, you, you mentioned earlier that you contemplated doing a nonfiction book, but it turned into the fiction of inheritors. If it had been a nonfiction book, what would 
your point have been? What would what points would you have been trying to make? Well, I think I, I mean I have to answer it the other way. I think that for me, um, the focal point I wanted the focal point to be the human experience, you know, because I think so. You can kind of think these things through, but it doesn't mean that you kind of understand how people can be so persuaded into you know supporting policies um, that end up you know turning into mass bombings of other countries and all of that you know and so um, for me it was kind of a desire to understand how people in these situations because it's you know it's, it's really a privilege to think that none of us will do any of these things or all of that and I think that this is sort of an assumption that we tend to have do you think, I mean, you talked about the Meiji Restoration. We had actually Anne Applebaum on the show last year talking about sort of history reaching a circle. And we're back to that um, incident where the, the U.S. sailed into the, the, the harbor and, and reminded people of their strength. America now is, of course, in decline on lots of fronts and being usurped in some ways by China. Um, do you see history repeating itself in, in, in all this stuff, in Japan, in China, in the United States? I don't know if it's, it's a repetition in the way that we might think about it, although I do think that there is something unresolved, you know, structurally, um, because, you know, I think that the Enlightenment project sort of thinking that privileges, you know, science, technology, and... You, um, so you, you use this word enlightenment project in a very sort of casual way are you suggesting that it's mythology are you suggesting as Horkheimer and Adorno argued that it's somehow rooted in violence and racism and exploitation and inequality they were of course the cultural inheritors of Marx um, I don't know if, I mean I, it's a worldview and I guess worldviews are narratives and they are mythologies in that sense but I think that it was persuasive you know, because I think about the world today and um, the privileging of science and technology and reason. And, you know, I'm obviously being reductive here, um, but you can kind of, I mean, they're, they're quite persuasive. And, you know, I mean, I have these future stories that sort of talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you quote in your, your piece, uh, Frederick Jameson, I guess, who's an inheritor mm -hmm. again of... Uh, of the Frankfurt School, uh, he, he writes, and this is in your Lit Hub piece, historical events are never really punctual. That's written as a Marxist, that's my commentary. Despite the appearance of the abruptness of its violence, but extended into a before and after of historical time that only gradually unfold to disclose the full dimensions of the histor historicity of the event. Um, and then in, uh, it, it, you also write about, and you're writing after the, the Boston bombing of the, the threats uh, to Al-Qaeda and American uh, wars overseas. Is history theater, violent theater? I think so it can, I think that, you know, it's a theater in the sense that it, it, it's a spectacle, you know, when it's used, It's a spectacle in the sense that, you know, that's, I think of it as the, the narrative around it is it makes it into a spectacle where I think that it, you can have a paralyzing type of effect on And people. you use that word spectacle in a kind of uh, almost technical way. I mean, it, it's a word that's often used by critical theorists. 
Yeah, and I and and I mean I can you know I tend to use it more broadly to mean that you know it's something to to watch and and it kind of you know creates this distance between you know you um, as the spectator um, and and what's going on and I think that we kind of see this sometimes or we've seen it in the last four years in in some ways you know where people felt I think um, paralyzed you know, like this is larger force and larger historical events sort of unfolding. And, you know, again, there's this question of, of individual agency, you know, like what can we do and how effective is that, you know? Asaka, your book, uh, Inheritors, is, is, is very much about Japan and the Japanese-American experience and history. Uh, but in the Lit Hub piece, you, you, you talk more about the Middle East, Al-Qaeda, Bin Laden. Um, are these histories interchangeable? Can, for example, and we've done a number of shows about Islam, um, anti-Islam feeling, Muslim culture and identity. I, I wouldn't say they're interchangeable, but can somebody from Palestine or um, perhaps learn from your book, Inheritors? I mean... I don't know. I don't think it's interchangeable at all. Um, the contexts are very different. Um, but I think that the experience itself might not necessarily be um, prohibitive. You know, I don't know if you can learn anything, but there may be something that you could resonate with as a reader. You know, I mean, I think that that's part of what fiction tries to do. Even Are if you trying to learn? Are you, uh, Not learn, that was a, a slip. Are you trying to educate? Do you want your readers to learn? Um, I, mean, I, I could never tell reading the book. I wasn't sure whether you were telling me something or just being an artist or, 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 or do you, is, is that a, a, the wrong way of, of asking that kind of question? I think that, you know, for me, it, I, I don't know about learning. I mean, I think that if there's something that, you know, a reader gets out of it that they learn, that's great, you know. Um, but I think more so for me as a fiction writer anyway, um, it's it's more to show them the, the complexities, especially the moral complexities of a situation. And I think, you know, as a writer, I, I mean, I think there's different kinds of writers. You know, I think that there are writers who try to, um, you know, drop the reader into this kind of immersive world um, where there are no scenes, whereas I'm kind of interested in the scenes, like how some how stories or, or, or larger narratives are constructed. And I definitely try to uh, retain um, the space for critical thinking as re readers are reading. So, in other words, bring up questions that the, then you know it's it's um, on the readers to sort of answer. Uh, does that mm -hmm. sort of make sense? It definitely makes sense. Um, as I said, the book Inheritors just out in paperback. It's a must-read been enormously successful, won lots of prizes, been acclaimed wherever it's been reviewed. Um, what have you learned from the readers, Asako, of the book? I'm sure you've had many letters and emails and comments um, that you hadn't thought of when you were writing the book. I mean, I think that, you know, this, oddly, I think that this is um, a history that's in the, the Pacific side of World War II isn't one that is um, depicted or, or talked about as, you know, that much, and I think that whatever there is tends to be still one-sided um, and stereotypical. 
And so um, there's been a lot of interest in that way, you know, people telling, writing to say that they didn't know something about this history, going back to this learning thing. Um, but I've also had, um, you know, people who served uh, or people with families who served on that side of the war writing me, and that was sort of a surprise. Um, so it's it's been, you know, and and it's the kind of book where, you know, I don't know how people or what people are going to get out of it because there's so many different strands. And so that's been a surprise, too, um, in terms of, you know, what people are looking at, what themes they are, they seem to be latching on to. How's it been received in Japan, your work? Um, I know you've said that you're, you've been quite influenced by Seaboard, who, of course, writes about... Germany and, 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 and the German experience of, of, of World War II. There is a big difference, though, between the German and Japanese experience in the German admission of guilt, whereas the Japanese are much more ambivalent. Has your book been treated differently in Japan as it has been in the U.S.? You know, quite honestly, I don't know. Um, the only person I um, spoke to was a teacher who... Um, you know, was happy to see some of these atrocities depicted because it's largely still absent. Although I think that that's also a misconception because what gets translated of Japanese literature um, are particular, although, you know, recently I think there's been some that um, deal directly with imperialism and war. Um, so I, the answer is that I don't know. And my parents don't speak um, or read English. So I don't really know what their... Did your parents are. read it? Though? Did you get it translated for them? I mean, do they... No, no. Um, my, you know, my life is very separate, you know, in that sense. Um, you, I'm still write, a Japanese um, citizen. But. Yeah, Asaka, you write in your Lit Hub piece about uh, technology. You're quoting Andreas Hoysen from Twilight Memories. Um, Twilight memories are both generational memories on the wane due to the passing of the time and the continued speed of technological modernization and memories that reflect the twilight status of memory itself. Twilight is that moment of the day that foreshadows the night of forgetting. Um, in The Inheritors, you, your last stories focus on technology, on 21st century technology. Uh, we had the, uh, the Californian writer Kathy Wang and technologist on the show recently, like you, a fiction writer, but a polemical one who wrote The Imposter, who wrote Imposter Syndrome, which talks about um, anti-Asian culture in Silicon Valley. Um, to what extent do you think do AI and all these new technologies coming out of Silicon Valley, how do they change the stuff that you've been writing about? Or is it just a continuation of, of the narrative? I mean, I, in my mind, it's a continuation of the narrative, um, which is why they're there, I suppose. But on the other hand, you know, um, I'm always interested in transitional spaces. So hopefully, you know, um, it doesn't necessarily mean we're actually headed in some of the directions that it seem, we seem to be headed, you know, with AI and this kind of algor algorithmization um, of uh, the, uh, the world, you know, because if we're talking about narratives um, and stories, um, what happens then, you know, what happens to things like memory if it's all algorithms, for example? Um, there have been all sorts of pieces, Asako, about um, 
anti-Asian hate in Silicon Valley. Lots of uh, this is from Bloomberg. Uh, one piece I read recently suggested that a lot of um, Asian workers, technologists, sometimes very well educated, and, and, and this is something that I think Wang talks about, uh, touches on in her book, um, they're all treated the same by the white workers, partly because the whites aren't able to distinguish between Asians. They all think of them as the same. They don't know their names, uh, even when they're very senior. Um, is this something that surprises you? And what should Asian Americans do in Silicon Valley to fight back, to shape the narrative, to, to use your word, to establish agency? Well, that's a really hard question because, A, I don't think that, um, you know, Asian You like Americans, hard questions. You said you, you were looking forward to the hard questions. <laughs> Actually, no. But um, now that you ask, I think, you know, I think one of the dangers is to think of Asian, Asian America as this kind of monolithic grouping, you know, because um, there is a vast, uh, it, it's very diverse within that group economically as well. And so, you know, one needs uh, one group's needs within the, within the grouping. Um, one group's needs might not be the same as another group. So it's hard to say actually um, what Asian Americans in general should do. You know, because I think that this also has to be looked at in terms of the larger um, picture of of American racism. You know, that's not just um, targeting Asian Asian Americans or Asians. Well, let me rephrase the question. Asian American writers, and I know you're going to tell me where well, there are different kinds of Asian American writers, <laughs> and, I, and I take that. But what, what do you think your responsibility as an, as an Asian American, a successful, high-profile Asian American writer in confronting the, um, the racism against Asians? And, and, and the problem, as you, you suggest in your work, is that the, the racists don't don't distinguish. They don't say, oh, well, that's a Korean American versus a Japanese American versus a Chinese American. Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't know that there is like a single strategy, you know, and I mean, I don't know. I have a hard time sort of talking about um, or, or even speaking for in any kind of way um, for Asian Americans, because I don't know that you know, and, and, and this isn't to do, you know, you were just saying how, you know, from the, the white racist perspective, it doesn't matter. But for me, you know, I don't see myself necessarily as, I mean, I'm not an Asian American person. And so it's, it's kind of hard for me to really um, speak to the Asian American community, you know, but I think for my own self, I think, um, you know, writing a book like this, for example, uh, because really, you know, what's what's curious to me is the construction of of that racism, you know, anti. Because um, I think that it's not a static thing either, you know. I mean, there are characteristics, um, but uh, across time, you know. But it's not um, stat static, and it's used for different reasons, you know. And so I think, you know, I try to look at the construction, and you know, in my books or or you know, future books, um, and you know, in essays or wherever else I can, um, I try to kind of look at the context and try to, you know, get as much nuance in as possible, because I think that's the other thing that happens that's sort of unhelpful is this kind of stripping away of nuance and context, you know? And so 
um, you don't really, I mean, unless you get into how something is constructed, I don't know that you can even try to dismantle it, you know? You brought up the F word, Osako, future, future books. This book, uh, Inheritors, <laughs> took you 12 years, uh, 12 yeah. years of blood, sweat, and toil. It's a very short book, but it's packed. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it, it, I, I, when I was reading it, I thought of the, the Russians more than Asian <laughs> or Americans. I mean, I thought of uh, the Russian short story tradition where you've, it's so finely tuned. It's a wonderful work, essential reading, I think, for anyone uh, interested either in uh, the Japanese experience or Japanese American experience or just fine art. Um, but it took you 12 years. Are you working on something? And, and, and as I said, it's a must read. It's just out in paperback. Uh, are you working on a new book? I hope it's not going to take you 12 years. We need more than uh, one book every 12 years from you, Osaka. Um, well, actually, this book is part of um, a quartet. Oh, my God. Um, it's going to take you 48 years. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not it's not contiguous in the traditional sense. Um, I think there's a lot of things that I couldn't explore uh, properly in in this particular book. And so um, they're all going to look very, very different um, formally, too, and maybe even genre wise. Um, but it's exploring various. Yeah, when, um, when can we look forward to the next uh, the next book in this quartet? Hopefully, uh, maybe in half the time. Six years. Well, well. I hope it won't be another six years, Osaka, till we have you back on the show. Uh, your, your. I wouldn't say new book, but new in paperback, Inheritors. Um, extraordinary, award-winning. All the, all the best uh, reviews from everyone. Um, must read. Uh, you're in Boston, a very green Boston, at least inside at the moment, Osako. Um, in these yes. weird post-COVID times where we're not sure whether we should or shouldn't go out, wear masks good opportunity to catch up with our reading. In addition to Inheritors, what else should people be reading in these strange times in, in what you would call our collective narrative? Well, let's see. So I have um, here are some of the books that I really enjoyed last year. And a lot of them are really slim because that was my reading uh, list during the pandemic. And the first one is Hideo Furukawa. Um, his book, Horses, Horses in the End, the light remains pure. And it's it's about this, it's, it's, it's this really strange, compressed, um, geologic kind of book um, where there's a narrator who's going back to Fukushima after the nuclear disaster. Mm. And, um, you know, he ends up taking us through um, into the heart of Japanese imperial history. So that was one that was really quite good. Um, and then there is this one that I read, Adania Shibili's uh, Minor Detail. It's... Um, a book, it's, it's this really kind of incredibly taut and um, tense fractured kind of book um, that's set in uh, Palestine. Um, so this was a really interesting one. And then um, there was one collection that I really, really enjoyed, which is called The Heartsick Diaspora. It's by Elaine Chu. Um, and it's it, it, their stories revolve around this um, uh, Singaporean and Chinese uh, Malaysian diasporic communities. Well, um, Asako Sarazawa, uh, it's been an honor, a real thrill. I love your work, and I hope it won't be another six years till we have you back on the show again. Get writing with that second book in the quartet, and we will talk about it. Keep well, keep thinking, 
and uh, best of luck with with all your narratives thank you so much thank you thank you so much andrew